One day there was a video game called Star Fox, and it fell in love with a video game named Kingsfield, and together they made Starfield. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. Today we are opening up the mailbag and taking your questions on all sorts of things, from playing games with your children to the Switch 2 launch lineup. I'm Jason Schreier. <laughs> I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm Maddie Myers. We wow, we it. really flew we into that one half cocked. We, we, <laughs> we barely made it into the intro this week. That was week. exciting. Jason, keeping me on my Kirk, toes. Before we started recording, Kirk had told us that he, he's having an out of body experience. So just, just, so I you know. Guys know. And Jason and I were scared and worried while we were we saying our names. Not know. If you felt like we were worried about him, we <laughs> were. Very yes. brief. Very brief. <laughs> Out of body experience. Okay, you, well, Kirk is pulling all, a Mitch McConnell. I'm back. Up. <laughs> yeah, yep, I'm back a, in a my body. McConnell, now. A glitch McConnell. Glitch McConnell. Here we are. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Topical references. Welcome back to another episode. Maddie is married. Hey. Maddie, this I'm is Maddie's post marriage. Hey, I'm actually married, married Maddie now. Myers. Maddie, you're married very Maddie fun. Myers. Triple M, as we call her. Two rings on this Maddie, finger. Maddie, at, at your wedding, it was so. You looked the happiest I have ever seen someone. It was, it was awesome. Very fun to Aww. watch. How happy listeners! You looked. It was so wonderful. Yes, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was yeah, very beautiful happy. wedding. Uh, yes. Kirk and I had a great time. Yeah, I was did. just looking um, out at the crowd, and I saw Kirk and Jason there, and I was just so happy about video games. Yeah, exactly. That's why you're so happy. <laughs> you're like, man, I was like, Baldur's Gate three. You know it's been cool? a great year video for games. games. <laughs> I've been to a decent number of weddings, and one thing you did, I've never seen at a wedding before, and it's like the most clutch move I've ever seen, which is at the end of the wedding, hanging out, handing out bags and like popcorn and chips and stuff. Yes, which is we just the perfect, the perfect closer right. to, to everyone wedding. take a snack. Yeah, for the real we snack a bag. Snack bag. I mean, I, I was like, people got to sober up. I mean, people really weren't. People were pretty sober at our wedding. Got a lot of nerds in attendance at our wedding, so I yeah. wasn't too worried about that. But I was kind of like, all right, people have to drive home. What what should we do? We should have glasses of water and like potato chips <laughs> at the end of the night. And <laughs> so uh, it was safe. a good call. Also, extremely extremely fun to listen to your dad give a speech about how famous you are. Uh, I know. That was, that was, was very sweet. Your dad's speech was wonderful. You got to meet my mother, number one fan yes, of Triple yes. Play. Shout mother. out to Maddie's mom and dad, both of whom. <laughs> Uh, Jason and I yes. both got to meet who are lovely and yeah, Maddie's Maddie's mom, a, a triple quick listener, very fun. Triple I, I should say it wasn't actually a speech about how famous you are. It was a speech about how touch, <laughs> how like how much he, how, how much how of proud a kick, he is of me yeah, how, and my how much pride he took and, in hearing people like know the sites you worked for and like the stuff you did and how how enjoyable he found that. Yes. How his um, brother always seemed to know when you were on NPR. It yes, was a, it was a very mm-hmm. winning speech. Extremely cool. Um, yeah. So hey, we are a listener supported podcast. If you want to make triple click possible, go to maximumfun.org slash join and become a Maximum Fun member. Help us make this show. We don't have ads. We just have listener support from all you fine folks no out ads. there. Just no listeners. ads. No ads. Free. Just vibes. Um, and if you become a Maximum Fun member, uh, you support us, first of all. But also you get bonus episodes, including when we are about to put up uh, which is about might even the Legend be of Zelda. Yeah, oh, it might be up. Might be up already. Might even about be up as you're listening. The to Legend this. of Zelda: Tears <laughs> of the Kingdom, where the three of us do a deep dive into that game, spoilers and all. We talk about the story. We'll talk about everything. It'll be really cool, really fun um, bonus episode, but also tons of bonus episodes. We do one every single month, so you can look forward to that if you become a member. Otherwise, we. 
Thank you anyway for listening to our show, even if you're not a member. Yeah, thanks All anyway. Right. <laughs> thanks anyway. So, thanks anyway. Uh, my daughter mm-hmm. has started saying no thank you to everything. Like, anytime you say, like, she doesn't yep. want to do something, Important she'll say no phase. thank you. Mm-hmm. And so yes. it'll be like, hey, uh, are, are you ready to Are you ready for bed? Are you ready to go to, like, are you ready no, to go to have dinner? No, thank mm-hmm. you. No, no, no thank, thank you. you. No, I love when you. kids do that about something they just said they did want. And uh-huh. you can tell they're just exercising the power of choice in <laughs> yeah. that moment. Like, they're, like, reaching for something. And you're like, oh, do you want uh-huh. that? And they're like, no. no. Actually, I don't. No. I didn't want mm-hmm. that. You're like, you're sure you don't no. want this cookie? <laughs> yeah, They're it's like, like, I just saw no. you saying you wanted this. Okay. One of her catchphrases <laughs> also is, in a very cute voice, she'll say, no, not today. That's what she'll say. <laughs> <laughs> hey, are you ready to really go to the good. potty? No, not no, today. No, not today. No, I Maybe don't think tomorrow. so. Check back with me in a little bit. All right. This week, we are doing a Burning Questions episode where we take your questions, all of your fine listener questions. Wow. You can ones. really support the, the show in a lot ones. of ways. You can send in questions. You can become a member. We just love our listeners. Um, it's true. We just do. a reminder before we get into it, you can always send emails to tripleclick at maximumfun.org if you have any questions. Like we always say, keep them short. Your chances of getting read on the show are much higher if you keep them to one or two paragraphs max. That's true. Should we also say that we're going to talk about Starfield next week? If anyone's wondering where the oh, stuff yeah. is, yeah, 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 yeah. we're going to talk about that next week. We just haven't had time to play enough of it. So next week. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, cool. Let's get on with it. Uh, Maddie, start us off with the first okay. question. Okay. This one is from Jesse, who writes, hey, triple clickers, love the show. This question is mostly directed towards Jason, but I'd love to hear input from Kirk and Maddie. My wife and I have a child just over one year old, and we're expecting a second child in late November 2023. We'll also be having an older sister and a younger brother. As a parent, I've already heard plenty about time management and incorporating games into a new slash busier lifestyle. Coming to terms with reduced gaming time was not fun, but worth the baby cuddles and playtime. Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in how you came to discover and love video games as a child. And if you think there's an ideal way to expose your own kids or young family members to games, is there a certain age we should introduce them to certain types of games? Are there specific games that worked well for you as a child? Any other observations you've had with your own kids or family that are relevant? I'd love to hear your thoughts. So it's interesting, right, even Jason. though, well, even though this question, <laughs> even though Jesse says this question is mostly directed towards Jason, my oldest is just about to turn four in a couple of weeks, and she is not old enough really to appreciate games. And in fact, if any of us, any of the three of us can answer this question best, it's probably Kirk, whose nieces are much older. Oh, yeah, they're and, older. Like, old That's true. To, and they actually play games. But one thing I will, I will say just to, to, to offer my own answer is that I have played a little bit of Super Mario World with my daughter. She like only likes to hold one of the two switch controllers. She won't even she refuses to hold both of them. And then I've I've <laughs> oh, showed her the I've showed her the trailer for <laughs> Super today. Mario. Not today. <laughs> I've showed her the trailer for Super Mario Bros. Uh Wonder, the new one that's coming out. Mm-hmm. And she enjoyed that. She was like she was very excited about Elephant Mario. Yeah, the elephant. So that'll be my first attempt to like really getting her into the swing of a game is that one. But um Kirk, you know the most about this you've seen it firsthand. Yes, yeah, you've I have. seen a child playing a game recently. <laughs> yeah, my my nieces are twelve and nine, going on thirteen and ten, um, coming right up here on those birthdays. And yeah, they're they're very into video games. Uh, I think partly due to my influence, they have a Switch <laughs> and they 
uh, I would come down and visit, and they would love, you know, just touring all of the games that I had on Switch since I had basically every game. And then they got really, really into Zelda, and it's been really cool watching them play Breath of the Wild and now Tears of the Kingdom. It's the only, basically the only game that they play, and they play mm-hmm. it uh, a lot. They've, they're really, really into it. They got really into Breath of the Wild. It was crazy. When I went down and visited, they had done... Everything. I think I talked about this some on the <laughs> yeah, show. I think but you they, did. Yeah, was this when when it came out? So they were what? Like no, what ages it, were they when they got into? It, this was probably a year ago, so oh, it was okay. pretty recently. Um, and it wasn't right when it came out, so the game mm-hmm. was sort of fully fleshed out. I think they had all the DLC, and also Tears of the Kingdom was coming pretty soon, so they were a little bit older. There's also a, there was a huge wealth of information online, and they're really into going onto YouTube and just looking up how to do stuff. They have mm-hmm. no qualms about that. They explore the game, but they're just totally happy with just watching a guide for how to do this, how to find that. Here's the secret. So when I looked at their save game, I mean, I don't think they'd finished the game, but they had done so much stuff that I hadn't done. All of that monster stuff that was DLC, where you get the monster hats by getting monster yep. parts. They just are willing to explore and play games in that kind of childlike way. And that game really rewards that type of open-minded exploration. So they're really into it. Um, It's funny, you know, I think back on my own childhood as well, uh, related to watching them play. And a lot of my experience playing games as a kid was wanting to play games and encountering limits that had been imposed by my parents, which Mm. is also something that my nieces run into. My sister definitely limits the amount that they're able to play, and they're constantly trying to play more (laughs) because they love the game. It's really, really fun, and it's also addictive in that way that games are, and so they just, like, they'll play it. I mean, if you just leave them to their own devices, they'll just, well, so to speak, they'll just grab their device and they'll start playing Zelda. Um, they came and stayed with us for a week over the summer. And I mean, it was, I think they didn't bring their Switch, but if they had, they would have just played mm-hmm. the entire time. They would have just time. played it 24 hours a day. Yeah. 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 And I get it. It's really fun. But there is this kind of constant push-pull with boundaries. And I remember that from being a kid, like uh-huh. waking up super early in the morning so I could sneak out and play Doom on my dad's work laptop uh-huh. and then delete uh-huh. it off the hard drive so that he didn't <laughs> yeah. even know I'd I done it before school. I remember this iconic story. Yes, yeah. I've told that story many <laughs> right. times I love on the show. It. Yeah, or like, yeah, I would go to my grand... I would be so excited to go to my grandparents' house for the weekend because I could just play games all day and no one was there to stop me. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, th- I, mean, I don't know, that's my, my main thought about that, about introducing kids to games, I guess. Well, I guess my big question for you is do you remember like what age your nieces started getting into games or like how they first started getting into um which ones they so started you know they're into? they're about three years apart and i think it helped that the clara the my older niece um she started probably when she was around nine or ten and so she can kind of help onboard zoe my younger niece okay. and mm-hmm. she she can she's just like a little more you know mechanically capable and could play games in a light in a more complex way so they play them together they have separate saves, but they play them together. They played a lot of Animal Crossing 2 during the pandemic, and that's a much more mechanically forgiving game because there's not really combat the way that there is in Zelda. But they yeah. play very differently. They sort of just have a different... I mean, they're very different people, like fascinatingly different, really, to me, just as their uncle, like how different they are. And that expresses itself in the way that they play. But I do think that it was helpful since there were two. And Jesse, you mentioned that you're going to have you know, an older and a younger uh, a kid. I think that that'll be cool Like as the older one gets more into games and kind of reaches that age, which I'm guessing is probably around there. I'm sure it's different for everyone. One, but like eight, nine, and mm-hmm. then the younger, the younger sibling will kind of have someone to follow and watch and learn from, and then they'll probably start 
playing games a little bit earlier than they would have otherwise. And as a younger, like as a second child, that's definitely the case for everything, right? As you just start doing everything a little bit earlier than your older sibling. Mm -hmm. Yep, that was my experience growing up. My sister's two and a half years older than I am, Mm -hmm. and we both had Game Boys, and so we could share a lot of the same game cartridges, and she was always better at every game than I was in part because she's a couple years older than I was. And so having that younger kid experience of somebody else in your house who's beaten the game, and kind of help you figure it out when you're stuck, but also be the challenge because I'm so competitive and always <laughs> wanted to be better and would always want to be like faster at Mario or whatever it was just yeah. to be able to catch up. That feeling of, of having a sibling who's playing games, I think really empowers like a younger kid to be interested in it. And it's fun. Maddie, did you and your sister ever play Game Boy via the, was it called the System Link cable? Yep. The cable that let you do PvP? You know, like we didn't Tetris really. Tetris against one another. Uh, we didn't Pokemon. really play that much. Mm. Yeah, so I got really into Pokemon, but by the time Pokemon was out, Mink wasn't really playing that many games anymore. Like, she really fell off and I kept playing for ever mm. and i was yeah, so was i was just i was just bringing my bringing my link cable to other people's houses by that oh. point i mean that was middle okay. school era so it, it was i i had other people in my life who played games by then as opposed to <laughs> elementary school where mink was one of the main people i knew my sister right. was one of the main people i knew who played games and i just didn't have that many friends as a as a little kid yeah kirk it's so funny you would have missed out on this because you're a few years older than me and maddie you would have missed out on the mm-hmm. pokemon middle school yeah, yeah the, the, totally yep. missed pokemon oh, that's like one so of the important. big generational differences <laughs> it's very interesting like six seven yeah, years well yeah. part of the appeal of that game was like talking about it with all your friends and collecting yep. them and mm-hmm. training them and stuff mm-hmm. and the the urban legends oh, yeah. under the truck oh, yeah. etc yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's good stuff um, but yeah, I mean, Maddie, do you have any thoughts on this before we move on about like when, based on your niece or based on your own experiences, like when to get a kid into games or what kinds of games to get them into? I mean, I think it depends on the kid. Like my niece is about six months older than Jason's kid and she already really likes playing games, but she is super into blocks, mechanical stuff. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I, I feel like she just kind of has a puzzle-minded brain, and so she automatically is like, "Yeah, I want to watch my dad play games and then sit on his lap and move the character around." And like you can already tell, she's like understanding that, and she's gonna get better as she goes along. And her parents are willing to let her do that, and so were mine. I mean, that's the other piece of it is that like there's so much more conversation now about the idea of screen time, which didn't really exist when I was a kid. My parents really limited TV. As, as everyone may remember from my, my <laughs> diatribes yes. about not being allowed to watch television growing up. But I was allowed to have access to the shared computer and play computer games. And I had a Game Boy. And, like, that didn't really count <laughs> for whatever reason in my family as screen time. So that was kind of how I got around that. Like, I was playing games very young. Like, I don't even remember when I got my Game Boy. But mm. real young. So probably four. I don't know. Yeah. One other thing that we should probably at least mention is something I'm at least aware of with a lot of Clara's friends. So that's my Mm -hmm. older niece. And also another friend of mine who has a daughter around her age is Roblox, which is something that I'm not super read in on and aware of. And I know Roblox is basically a platform and it can be anything. But Mm -hmm. Roblox is extremely popular and just a different sort of thing than what we're talking about. Like I'm talking about them playing Zelda right on a Nintendo. But I think that a lot of kids, it's like Roblox, Roblox, Roblox all the time. And that is video games to them. So it's worth at least mm-hmm. mentioning that mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. as like a social space like a lot of friend kids just treat roblox these days the way we yeah. treated aol instant messenger where like i'll overhear kids being like what's your roblox handle
channel. And like, that's the way that they communicate with each other, which is, I remember that being how mm. I communicated <laughs> with kids about D, like DMing on AIM and stuff. And it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, it's also a platform for games, but it's like a social platform too. And like those barriers breaking down around screen time is just something that the three of us didn't experience growing up, but that parents right. today have to be like, screen time means all forms of entertainment ever and i <laughs> yes. have to figure out which ones my kid is actually doing and whether i'm okay with that mm. sounds something hard. that uh, jason and jesse <laughs> both have to look forward to yeah i think our generation probably got into games younger because our parents were not into games for the most part and so yeah or didn't really know what was they were really, and were like, yeah sure, nobody was whatever. really doing the whole like slow burn introduction thing so we're i think gen yeah. x is really the first generation and then millennials now the first generations to really like have raise their kids but also have have been playing games or played games growing up and stuff so it's an interesting mm -hmm. transition and be aware of like the pitfalls of games and like right, what can downsides. be addictive about them i mean not to say that growing up people didn't worry about video games being addictive people certainly did no it was a big it was the whole thing the arcade craze like people yeah, were like in there, like, oh yeah the sticking the quarters and yeah. the uh um Let's move on. But yeah, this is something I'm sure I will be talking about quite a bit in the coming years yeah, as my oldest mm -hmm. gets older. Um, Kirk, why don't you read this next question from Carl? Okay, this comes from Carl. Carl writes, prompted by some of your other listeners, I've recently started to listen to old episodes of Kotaku Split Screen, which is wild, <laughs> by the it? way. It's particularly fun to listen to predictions episodes seven or eight years after they've been made. And for anyone who doesn't know, this is the podcast that Jason and I started at Kotaku back in 2015, a long time ago, and that we made thing. for a while um, without Maddie, which Carl and then notes. I joined it at some point. That's true. 2017, um, I think. Yes, a little bit before right, we sort of eventually became this, this show. So Carl writes, besides the obvious Maddie-shaped hole, in the first half of the back catalog, <laughs> I really enjoyed listening to it. In episode 63, Kirk said that wandering around the apartment blocks of Deus Ex Mankind divided, reading people's emails, and snooping through personal possessions was so fun that it could be its own game. I've been having fun with an early access game called Shadows of Doubt, an immersive sim where you play a detective and you essentially do exactly that to solve randomized crimes in a small city, which is not unlike Mankind Divided's Prague. So this got me thinking, what are some of your favorite minor mechanics in a game that you think could be expanded into a full game uh, on its own? Something like Prey or Dishonored 2 have plenty of these that come to mind for me, but is there anything that jumps out for the three of you? Mm. Shadows of Doubt, by the way, is something I've had my eye on, but I'm waiting for it to be in actual release and not early access. Yeah. But that game yeah, I have it installed. Really I just haven't had a chance to play it. It does look very cool. Mm -hmm. So well, mechanics that could be games. Yeah, I I really have Tears of the Kingdom in the brain right now because we're about to talk about it and I've just been thinking about it. And that so much feels like a game with a ton of other games inside of it that I can just do for hours and hours and hours. Like mm -hmm. I've been unlocking all of the light routes in the depths, which is just... <laughs> a game in and of itself like yes over the course of unlocking all the light routes you're defeating enemies you're exploring you're discovering things about the depths and so on like story related mm -hmm. things but mostly just the experience of seeing a light really far away in the extreme darkness and then being like okay what does the landscape here look like okay i need to shoot some lights towards it 
and then finally get there. That is so pleasurable to me. I don't, I probably it's the Metroid fan in me that loves that sense of exploration and being like, oh, what's around the next corner? Oh, it's all pitch dark here. I have to scout my, my plans. Oh, I'm going to wear my mountain climbing gear for this section. And then I'm going to change into my miners gear for this part. Cause it's too dark. I don't know. I freaking love that. Like, I feel like I could just do that for the rest of my life probably nice. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> be happy with it. That is the sign of a good sort of maximalist game, I guess, or triple A game where there mm-hmm. are so many different things that you're doing, each of which could be its own, own game. game. Yeah. You know, a game I just started playing that this question makes me think of is Dave, the diver. Have either of you played Dave, the diver, this game? I haven't, crazy. but I, I have read about it a lot. I've many it's obsessed so cool. coworkers. It's really <laughs> cool. And it is, it feels almost like, well, it's kind of the opposite of Carl's question in that, it starts out as this sort of fishing roguelike thing where you're you're going catching fish, taking them back. But then you have to like help make them into sushi at a sushi restaurant. And then there's a whole sushi sort of you have to work at the restaurant mini game. But then it just keeps getting more complicated and it adds photography. And then I went and watched the trailer for the game just on the Steam page. And it's the craziest trailer for a game I've ever seen because it starts out and it looks like the game that I'm currently playing. And then it just goes totally buck wild in a hundred <laughs> directions. And there's like guys with machine guns coming in and like totally crazy like cinematics nice. happening I'm like what in the world so it's almost the opposite of this but it it makes me think of it and I want to shout it out because um, I'm sure I'll talk about it more on the show as mm-hmm. I play more but it is kind of like someone took a bunch of those kinds of little things those very satisfying mini games you know filling up someone's cup with green tea to just the right amount mm. like a kind mm-hmm. of bartender game and then just put them all together and almost the joke of the game is that you know, it it is uh, so many of those things all jammed into one. A couple of things that come to mind, though, is the first act of Inscription, which then mm, did, become did become its own yep. kind of standalone thing because that game really kind of lost me a little bit or it lost steam for me a little bit when it changed. But the first act where you're just playing this kind of deck building roguelike was just really good. It was just like a really good deck building roguelike that I got really into. And that mechanic stayed throughout the rest of the game, but it became more elaborate as this the game kind of folds in on itself and becomes this increasingly elaborate um, experience. But really, they could have just made a game out of that initial act and had it just be a straight up game. And it would have been great as evidenced by the fact that they actually did that. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I was waiting for you to continue since you said a couple of things come to mind, but okay. We'll they do. I figured I'd one. leave some space for you. My answer, <laughs> <laughs> since you stuck in a one more thing in addition to your answer there. Um, right, right. <laughs> and Kirk with his, his two one more things. Uh, That's the main tricky this week. Um, yeah, my answer is uh, Final Fantasy mini games like Triple Triad or like Blitzball. Those mm. could usually make, uh, make a make Blitzball is a controversial game. example. I feel like people either love or hate it. Yeah, but with if you turned it, if you kind of stripped it out of the game and made it into something, you could polish some of the rough edges and like add mm-hmm. some more mechanics. With Blitzball, like I think people hate it because it seems like a sports game, but it doesn't actually play like a sports good. game. Yeah. Well, it's not that it's not very good. It's just I was like Lucio Ball and Overwatch, which kind mm. of is a version of Blitzball. I mean, it's way easier. It's kind of like Rocket League, but everybody plays as Lucio instead of as trucks. Well, so the actual Blitzball is is more like a card game than anything. It just has, it just looks like a a sports game, but like it looks like soccer, but it's not. It's like numbers and stats and stuff. It's like a a little RPG thing. It's been years, but I remember being baffled by it. It is, yes, it is a baffling experience. Those sorts of mini games 
a lot of times where they the best of those really can qualify as this. Another the other thing that I was going to say was the Mass Effect Two probe. Yes, planet probing. Uh, okay. game. We've talked about that before, and uh-huh. how satisfying have, and how it it's, feels. It's weirdly satisfying. It yeah. really yep. just comes down to this way the controller vibrates when you press yep. the trigger to fire the thing, <laughs> and the, the sort of arc of the probe as it yep. lands. Yeah, didn't I feel like someone made a standalone game that was just that? But I can't find it. I was. I mean, I just did a cursory Google while we were talking. Yeah, I'm not sure I about that. I did download an indie game that was just a series of lock-picking mini-games. That, that would be great. It, yeah, because those old Bethesda lock-picking yeah. games totally come to mind, It too. had a lot. It had the Mass Effect, like, code-breaking ones in it and a bunch of other ones. And oh, I, okay. I really thought I was going to love it. But then after a couple, I felt like I was, like, eating too big a bag of chips or something. Like, it was, like, right, too much right. of a, a good thing. It's weird how right. that works, where it's, like, a mini-game that's so satisfying when it's in a larger experience. When it's on its own, suddenly you're, like... Do I even like this? Like, what am I? What am I? It's doing? all side dish. It is like a bag of chips <laughs> with no sandwich. Well, the yeah, Fallout, exactly. that Fallout hacking game is basically Wordle, right? Like Wordle is essentially yeah. our mastermind. Really, you take the mastermind, or you take the Fallout hacking mini game, and you turn it. Into oh, Wordle. is that where, like where you're like making words? Yeah, out yeah. Of the, well, you're I hate the that hacking game. I hate it. <laughs> anyway, I let's move so on. <laughs> okay, next, next mini games episode. When let's mini games that, that are bad and that were bad mini games. Next question is from Max. Max says hi. I just recently started listening and have fallen in love with the podcast. Thank you, Max. If we assume that a Nintendo console is imminent to be announced this year or next year, I don't know what games will be included. After Tears of the Kingdom, after Pikmin 4, it's unclear what major releases are left for the Switch. Most of the major franchises seem like they've had releases fairly recently, and I don't know what they have up their sleeve. What would your expected or ideal launch lineup be for the Super Nintendo Switch? The next mainline Mario game seems likely, and Metroid Prime 4 might finally be on the horizon but what else could nintendo be hiding from us um well one big question is if it has backwards compatibility because if it doesn't Mm -hmm. they'll sell you the 70 dollar definitive edition of (laughs) tears of the kingdom uh yeah at 60 frames a second Um, i hope it's backward compatible that would that would be such a tragedy if it weren't. It really would. But um, but everyone will buy it anyway because it's the Switch 2 and like <laughs> Nintendo. Yeah. So assuming, yeah. yeah. And also also us. assuming it's the same sort of like form factor and same basic concept as the Switch. Um, yeah, there are a lot of a lot of potential ones here. Um, mm-hmm. I was, Just a full Metroid lineup because you know it's so popular and everybody knows <laughs> that. So it's probably just like sixteen Metroid games. Well, it does and- seem like Metroid <laughs> Prime Four. Like the timing does work for Metroid Prime Four yeah. to be that kind of cross gen like it, launch it on the does, Switch. It does, but I'm kind of joking around here because I don't know that Metroid Prime Four is enough to carry the launch of a new console. Like typically, it wouldn't be. You'd need a Mario. Well, right, and so like obviously they just had a Zelda, but the 3D yep. Mario, I, I I don't know anything. Yeah, we have Doesn't that seem like Mario we could have one of those yeah. at some point here? I'm or shocked like that Super Mario, Mario Odyssey never got DLC. That game is so ripe for it. Like you yeah. could have a whole planet, the whole new new. Yeah, why not? Area. I guess it didn't, right? Because there is some kind of post game stuff. There was like a Luigi really thing they added, Luigi but it thing. was it was okay. nothing. It wasn't like a real real concept. <laughs> it was nothing. Wow, hurting Luigi. I mean, I don't know. Like Breath of the Wild's DLC was also kind of disappointing. Like they they don't really like. I know that was actual DLC, but it was yeah. But it's kind of baked into the the main game. Yeah, it just kind of fits right in. So yeah, I mean, do you guys have like ideal launch lineup titles or like games you want to see on the Switch 2's release? Let's say uh, hypothetically, it's next fall, like fall of 2024. 
So I could see them announcing a 3D Mario. That mm-hmm. just seems like of that their feels big like temples. the the yeah that feels the like one, the most yeah, obvious. It's been been six mm-hmm. years, so that seems possible. I could also see them releasing a new version of Tears of the Kingdom that's sort of juiced up mm-hmm. for the for the more horse uh, more horsepower in a better console. Like mm-hmm. basically. Tears of the Kingdom, there's some expansion that they release as DLC that's also available on Switch, but then maybe they add like 10 new Zonai devices. That to me seems like the kind of thing where, oh, there's now these, we can make much more complex devices because we have more processing power. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's only going to be in the new version. Mm. And then they bundle it up and they sell it new to people buying that console for, I'm sure, for 70 bucks or whatever and um, just bleed us all for everything that we're worth. <laughs> And then it runs at 60 frames per second or whatever. It like runs in 4K and looks yeah, way better. Yeah. Um, so I could see that happening as yeah. well. Yeah. So my guesses would be, other than like some new IP that comes out of nowhere and like blows everybody away, um, a new Mario Kart. Uh, it's been a long time since Mario Kart. Yeah. Eight. Yes. Um, so Mario and it's Kart one of the nine. most highest selling games on the Switch. Yeah. Ever. No, it is, it is still it is one of the, the best games yeah. on the Switch. I believe it is it's the good. most. Yeah, the <laughs> it's really fun. Game. And then also <laughs> a new Smash Brothers, which I don't yes. really know where they go from Ultimate. But I don't still, either. It's been, it's a good point. been quite a while. <laughs> it does t- kind of feel like it's impossible um, to make another one. Who knows? Who knows what that'll look like? And then uh, I guess there's a lot of remake, like given that they're coming out of nowhere with like a Super Mario RPG remake, they could really yeah. go in the remake direction with a lot of different The rest games. of the Metroid Prime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love that. I mean, I, I know the Link's Awakening remake is pretty far behind us at this point, but I yeah. thought that was kind of an interesting sign of something mm-hmm. that could happen more often, like a total refresh right. of an old game that not a lot of people mm-hmm. have played. I'd love to see them do that for more Zelda or Metroid games. I mean, Samus Returns on the 3DS is, is great as well. The Mercury Steam version of Metroid 2. I mean, I'd, I'd just like mm. to see more versions of old Nintendo games that are totally remade in some form and are easier to play, especially right. some of those old ones that are like no save points, yeah. like really freaking well, and, hard. Right. Yeah. And not to mention the extremely long running, still unfulfilled rumor of Wind Waker, Twilight Princess yes, remakes, yeah. which mm-hmm. still could happen at that. any point. So, I mean, know. I thought those were pretty good the first time around. So those weren't remake again. rumors. Those oh, were I'm sorry. Remasters. Oh, they were just remasters. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Or not even remasters because they were already remastered on the Wii U. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, a little bit simpler than that. Yeah, the ones I'm expecting are like an Oracle of Ages, Oracle of Seasons remake in the style of Link's Awakening. Like right. that feels like right. the next obvious move. Um, yeah, the 3DS launched, or maybe it was shortly after launch, but that first year the 3DS got an Ocarina of Time remake. Which is a great which is, remake. Yeah, a really good mm-hmm. one. And so, then Majora's Mask one later, which yeah. was mm-hmm. good. So there is precedent for some Oh of man, stuff. and they could still port Link Between Worlds. That I know. Still That's happened. another one. Yeah, there are a bunch yeah. of these bunch of games there's, that haven't made it to like Switch. There's a bunch of like DS and 3DS games that yeah. are just trapped there mm-hmm. in that a are weird so good. Nintendo purgatory. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. But any of those could run on the Switch, but they could yeah. also bring them to a to a to new hardware. But really, mm-hmm. we all know that we're just going to have to rebuy Super Mario Brothers 1 again <laughs> on uh, the newest whatever. version of the virtual console like mm-hmm. they they start a brand new system for that. All right, let's get yeah. to the next question, Maddie read uh the eric eric's question all right eric writes non-game music question 
I'm not as good at, as Kirk, but I enjoy playing saxophone. Hell yeah. I work a non-musician job, which means I can only practice at night. And I have a toddler, which means I cannot make loud noises at night. Essentially, I can't practice at all. I've seen ideas like stuffing a sock in the horn to muffle the sound, but that will screw up low B flat and other low notes. Is there any real serious way to be able to practice a wind instrument while not waking anyone up? <laughs> Bonus non-game question. <laughs> this is a hilarious email. Nearly all my saxophone experience is with classical music. I have an alto. How do I get a tone like Kirk has in the Triple Click theme song? <laughs> my tone is not nearly as colorful, more muted. I assume this jazzy tone is a combination of mouthpiece, reed, embrocure, I and practice. Um, sure. I don't. I don't know, Kirk. You tell me how to <laughs> um, pronounce sure. that sax word. Well, welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton. And we're Yay. briefly here to we, talk we about saxophone. We Strong Songs question this week. This is it. good. This is good. Um, I can give a very quick answer to this uh, lovely question, Eric. Um, I would say, no, there's not really a great way to practice saxophone quietly, which is a bummer. I've always been jealous of brass players who have a thing called silent brass. Since there's only the one hole on a trumpet, you can put this thing it's like a mute in that then goes mm-hmm. to headphones and you can hear yourself it's so cool and you can't really do that with a saxophone because saxophone has a lot of holes mm. and they make these like bags these things you put over the horn that's supposed to mute it i've never really tried one it just seems very weird to me um, but you can kind of try those what i would recommend is actually trying a wind synth i don't know what your budget is like but i've got what I play is a Roland Aerophone, and it's basically an electric saxophone. Uh, somebody recently beat Elden Ring, a no-hit run, <laughs> playing the Roland Aerophone, the AE-10, which is Amazing. the one I used to play. I got an AE-30 now. Wow. But it is basically, a, it, play, it has fingers, you finger it like a saxophone, it has little keys, um, they're kind of buttons, and then you blow into it, and it has all these different sounds, you can do a million different tones it's super super fun it can be a midi controller it's incredible if you can play saxophone you can do so much cool stuff with it and it's not the same for like developing your tone because it doesn't require you to like make the reed vibrate but it is good for just practicing scales and keeping your fingers loose so that's an option for playing and it's totally silent you can just play with headphones so i play an aerophone and i like it but there's a bunch of different companies that make them and then as for saxophone tone, yeah, I mean, it's just you got to play with a different setup. It's something I've been thinking about with Tears of the Kingdom, actually. Yeah, there is a good sax game. <laughs> great sax game. There's an alto saxophonist. I think it's just one sax player. There might be a sax section on some stuff, but it might be a per- one person overdubbed. But there's an alto sax that has that very kind of classical, more muted tone. And it's not how I sound. It's not how I play the saxophone because I learned jazz. And it really is about the mouthpiece that you're using in the reed. And I'll just say, Eric, I play an Autolink 7 a hard rubber mouthpiece. And I used to play Vandoran Java two and a half reeds, but now I play uh, Rico Select Jazz Medium. I play kind of lighter reeds. But yeah, you need a more open mouthpiece. And then it's all about your embouchure, that that hard to pronounce weird word embouchure, which is mostly going to be your lower lip. And you want to practice rolling that out a little bit more than you might be. And that'll open up your tone. It takes a little work to get it in tune. But um, anyways, uh, shoot me an email if you have more questions and I can, <laughs> I can answer you off the show. But I'm happy to get to talk no, a little bit good. about more saxophone. More sax on. jargon. I, I like it when the sax goes brum, 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 brum. Yeah, me too. I think uh-huh. it sounds cool. <laughs> nice. I'm probably, I probably record some saxophone that'll be playing behind us right now. So just uh, demonstrating my mouthpiece. Very cool. 
we're hanging out in a yeah, jazz man. lounge. Uh, <laughs> Kirk, what's the next question? This comes from Paul. Paul writes, Hi, gang. I absolutely love cool cities in video games. They offer so many things to explore and people to meet. A well-designed city feels lively, while badly designed video game cities feel like a computer program. What are your favorite cities in video games? This is a good question. Liberty City in GTA 4. I'll just throw that out there. Yeah. Unstoppable. I mean, just an incredible video game city for reasons that have been very well documented. I mean, to be fair, they have a bit of a model that they could, they base that one off of. It's a pretty (laughs) cool city, too. But, you know, there are how many versions of New York are there in video games? And yet there's still only one that feels like Liberty City. That's true. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's something in the design of that game that I've always loved is that I'm not sure if this is 100% true, but there are almost no dead-end alleyways. And I think that's a really important thing for that game. Something I've loved to do in GTA 4. Uh, man, this is this was a real moment in time for me. Was So bring the camera all the way in on Nico's shoulder so you don't like have a great field of view. And then you just like shoot at a cop so you get one star and then just start running. And then run <laughs> from the police while they chase you and see if you can get away. And because of the design of the city, you almost never get cornered. And so if you can just keep on your feet and keep thinking, it makes you feel like you're being chased like through the city and it's really thrilling. Um, it's a very exciting experience. So that city let me do that and I've never wanted to do that in another game. So mm. um, that's that's one example. Spider-Man's New York is pretty cool. The PlayStation 4 Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah I was going to say York. that. I also really liked um, Harlem in Miles Morales, the Spider-Man version of Harlem there. I know it's not accurate exactly, but it just had a little bit more personality in terms of just the number of NPCs you could run into. Like then going back and playing Spider-Man, the first one on PC, I was like, oh yeah, this doesn't quite have the same level of NPC personality and like <coughs> bad guy personality that Miles Morales had. I really noticed mm-hmm. the difference, mostly in terms of scope. Um, the other example I was going to give is Revacol, Revachol in mm-hmm. Disco Elysium, which oh my God. again... Yeah. I mean, it's it's almost entirely narrative-based in terms of what I like about that city as opposed to the placement of the buildings or anything like that. It's just the fact that it feels like a place where people live. You can just run into so many people who feel like they straddle a lot of different class and identities and just the way that a city feels where you're like a whole bunch of different kinds of people live here. I mean, that's what's great about living in a city in real life. And Disco Elysium really mimicked that. Like you can just get into random arguments with people and like street toughs will pick on you and make fun of your outfit. Like it just, I don't know, it feels like a city. There's just something about it. It feels like a couple of blocks of a city, which is an interesting approach to that too. Mm-hmm. And it tells the story of the city. Like you learn of this sort of failed revolution and the yep. siege that happened in the harbor. And there are these buildings that were destroyed and rebuilt. And you can kind of mm-hmm. find a building and it's explained to you as you look at it, the different layers of the building that you're seeing, which is something I actually remember Cliff Blasinski talking about this when he was talking about Gears of War. But yeah. but in, in regards to the world building of that series and how he approached it, that so many video game cities look brand new mm-hmm. and that you don't really get a sense walking through a lot of them. And this was back in 2006. 2005 so he was talking about much older games but you don't get a sense of the actual history of a city the way that you do when you go through a real city there's all kinds of historical monuments and placards being like this building was originally used for you know this totally other thing and like you know whatever was some part of the immigration process into New York and people stayed here when they first came and then there's photos and stuff and you look at it I found this a lot actually in Australia Australia is very tuned into their history and in a lot of places maybe it's that we were in more like touristy places too but there's just a lot of really cool history and that's such a part of a city 
that a good video game city tends to feel um, like it has a, a, an actual history. It's mm-hmm. cool when it's something like Disco Elysium where it's a fictional history. It's not yeah. based on somewhere in the real world. Um, I have another one. It's uh, now I'm forgetting the name of the city though. It's New Orleans in Red Dead Redemption Two, which was called New Bordeaux. Is that Saint what it Bordeaux? Was called? Saint Bordeaux. I want to say um, Saint Marie. I'm gonna look it up. New Orleans in Red Dead. <laughs> Saint Denis. Two. Saint Denis. Thank you. It's called Saint Denis, and it serves a different narrative function in addition to being just incredibly beautiful looking and well realized, like everything in that game. It serves this function of being this kind of horrifying blight a little bit on the wilderness, which I think is a really interesting part of the story of that game. Something that I talked about a lot in my review of it is the way that this the game is about the unstoppable march of progress and the destruction of progress and how just this you almost feel trapped in this move toward the future and this move toward something better that's actually worse. And it's in the end kind of destructive, right? That's this Western where they keep going east and they can't get, they can't stop going back toward civilization. And at the point in that story, when you arrive in what's the biggest city that's ever been in a Red Dead game and is, it's just totally stands in stark contrast to everything else in that game. It's horrifying that the scene where you first see the city, it's all just like factories and it's Arthur and Dutch and Dutch is just like, man, well, there it is. Progress. Like it's clearly shown to be a bad thing. Like it's just this ugly, polluting factory city. And then when you go explore it, there's a lot of really cool stuff there and civilization. It's neat. It's amazingly drawn. But you can I could never fully get away from that feeling being in it of like, this feels wrong. I've been out in the just woods. I've been sort of away from this. This whole thing, this whole like American project is in some way destructive. And I think that's like a really, really effective thing that that game does. Um, kind of throughout the whole game, but especially with that city, and that's something very cool about about Saint Denis. Cool theater shows, uh, though, despite the whole <laughs> yeah, unbelievably <laughs> blight, performance captured thing. Um, my answer mm-hmm. is uh, Midgar and Final Fantasy VII, uh, which mm, I yeah. think has really yeah. been uh, beaten for me in terms of like a city that just feels fully realized and crazy cool. Um, mm-hmm. The concept of like this big pizza pie as Barrett calls it where like the the haves live on top and the have-nots live on the bottom it's pretty Mm -hmm. pretty wild something I really liked about remake was how they visualized it it reminded me of the lower hangsha parts of deus ex um human revolution where you're in this lower city and you don't even see the sky because you're underneath this plate which Mm -hmm. is a very time tested cyberpunk idea and -hmm. something that even exists in actual cities in the world but like I never really got a sense of that in FF7, the no, original, because you're you always kind of looking yeah, down. You're looking the you can't look right up. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so you can imagine it eventually, but when you're actually below it looking up at the very beginning of uh-huh. FF7 Remake, I remember being like, oh my God, like this alone is revelatory, this, this perspective shift. Mm-hmm. And then it makes it matter way more when the plate is right. damaged you because you're like, understand. well, I got to know this entire mm-hmm. city down there and that that only matters later mm. because it's it's affected by what happens up top. Mm-hmm. Um, I it think, really works. I think we have time for one more quick question. This is from Alexander. He says, I don't think I've heard you talk about strategy games, especially 4X <laughs> games. <laughs> when was this email written? <laughs> well, this was written last year, but I wanted to focus on 4X games. He mentions real-time sure. strategy mm-hmm. games. So 4X mm-hmm. games, we never really talk about games like That's Civilization true. and Paradox games and stuff. Have any of you played any of the strategy 4X games? Any favorites? Any thoughts? 
Um, because mm-hmm. I'm actually a big fan of the Sid Meier type uh, games. Oh I yeah, played a Civ? lot of Alpha Centauri. I think we all like Civ. All big right? Civ fans. Yeah, it's been a oh, while yeah. since the last Civ. <laughs> Yeah, it's just dangerous. I mean, I don't play them because they oh, lose I know. whole yeah, days they, to them. When yeah, I yeah, set, they suck you in. You can't stop playing them is my, the issue with those games, uh, yeah, really. My, my favorite as a kid, my problematic fave now, I, you would call it, was Sid Meier's mm-hmm. Colonization, which was the American, right, right. Uh, American <laughs> like the exploring the new world and colonizing it mm-hmm. version of, uh, of the 4X games, which I still, yep. every once in a while, will pull up and play. Um, still, still holds up. Still very buggy, but uh, still fun to play. Mm-hmm. I always liked Civ Five. I think that was the one that I started to really get into. I think I played four, but I remember five being the one where I was like, "My laptop's getting really hot, and my hands yeah. are being injured by this experience." But I have to keep going. I can't mm-hmm. stop playing this game. Mm. And all I had was a laptop. Yeah, I had at the a time. similar experience with five, <laughs> and I never really got into six for that reason because I was like, "I can't." Yeah, it's I can't dangerous. Do this. Dangerous. Gotta be careful. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be really fun to play Crusader Kings sometime. That would have been yeah. a good. That'd be a good like bet pick for one of us to make all of us play Crusader Kings. I feel like none of us are super into it, but I think I would enjoy it. If that's why. Yeah, that's tried. why I think it would be fun. I think it'd be yeah. a little out of all of our comfort zones, but also it would lead to a very interesting conversations. Only because I've heard a lot of interesting conversations yeah. about that game so yeah. i could see that being pretty cool but even though i've never you really should make it your bet pick then that would be hilarious. i might for next year but funny. i always lose so then i would be <laughs> ensuring that we never play it um Aww. okay cool why don't we take a break thank you to everybody who wrote in once again send your questions to triple click at maximumfun.org let's take a break and we'll be back with one more thing somewhere in an alternate universe where Hollywood is smarter. And the Emmy nominees for Outstanding Comedy Series are Jet Pacula, Airport Marriott, Thruple, Dear America, We've Seen You Naked, and Allah in the Family. In our stupid universe, you can't see any of these shows, but you can listen to them on Dead Pilot Society. The podcast that brings you hilarious comedy pilots that the networks and streamers bought but never made. Journey to the alternate television universe of Dead Pilot Society on MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. Bullseye is celebrating 50 years of hip-hop by bringing you an entire month of brand new interviews with rappers. That means Jeezy. I put my pain in the music. Angie Stone. You know, hip hops. We called them hops back then. Master P. Music is what's going to open the doors for us, but whatever we come up with after this, it's going to be bigger. Plus, Chica, Saba, even the greatest of them all, Rakim. That's this September. Open up that podcast app, type in Bullseye, and hit subscribe. You're not going to want to miss any of this. And we are back. Kirk, Maddie, it is time for one more thing. I'm going to go first. Uh, I got a text last week from our old boss, Stephen Totillo, and he was like, hey, you should check out this game. It's this year's version of Case of the Golden Idol slash Return of the Everton. <laughs> And mm-hmm, it's a game mm-hmm. called. And that's your code phrase. That's your Manchurian I candidate. Immediately, it took me like <laughs> just activate. I was like, okay, you, you purchased it. <laughs> took me twenty. Well, it wasn't out yet, so it took me about twenty seconds to go to my computer, email send an email to the PR people uh, involved, get a code, 
And since then, I finished the entire thing. It's a game called Chance of Senar, which is kind of a terrible name, but uh, I'll try chance. to remember. C H A N T S. Yes, chance, yes. not like chance. Singing chance. Chance the rapper. And let yeah. me tell you about it and why it has come out of nowhere to become one of my favorite games of this year. One of the best games I played this year. A shoe in for my top ten list at the end of the wow. year. Chance of Sinar is a game about language. And so the way that it works is it's kind of, it's got this beautiful, really um, kind of uh, uh, stunning art style where you're, uh, it's reminiscent of Journey. It's a lot of stylized colors and and, Mm -hmm. um, really interesting looking characters and shapes. And you play as this little dude um, and you wake up, you kind of rise out of a coffin at the beginning of the game and you wake up and you start walking and then you run into someone who speaks this language that is just glyphs and you can't understand it. And then you see a door and you see a um, lever and the lever is next to a set of glyphs as well. And you can look at the glyphs and then you pull the lever and the door opens and then you you pull the lever the other way and the door closes and then you realize that the glyphs translate to open door and closed door and then you start to understand that this is the premise of the game so you go around this world that has been crafted and you uh kind of you have a notebook where you can figure out what each glyph actually means in english and it's structured in the same way as return of the Oberdin, where it's pairs of three or four and once you have a page right it'll tell you that you're right and it'll automatically fill in so then when you go and you keep exploring and you see that glyph it'll be translating for you automatically and it'll fill in the words that you do know and it'll leave blank the words you don't know so you can kind of try to figure it out as you go you can also enter guesses so those will show up on screen as like maybe it's this um and it's really really cool because it's entirely it's a big logic puzzle um as you go you might see someone and they'll say to you blank 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 and maybe you recognize one of the words from before or maybe you jot in your notebook that like oh he's holding a flower so maybe blank means flower and then you see somewhere else oh this person is also holding a flower and mentioned the same glyph so maybe that 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 definitely means flower and you kind of have to piece it together by exploring these these landscapes and figuring out what everyone is talking about and then as you go you get past the first area and you learn the first language and you get into a second area and there's a second language and then there's a third area and a third language and so on and so on and you realize you're climbing this big tower and that actually all the languages are connected to each other in some way and all the different people are connected to each other in some way and there's one big kind of uh, uh, I wouldn't call it a mystery but certainly a world to explore and a various peoples to connect along the way. Um, The story is based on the myth of the Tower of Babel, um, which is essentially that everyone spoke one language and then they tried to build a tower to to reach God or take on God, and God punished them by uh, splitting them into different nations that all spoke their own languages. And this game is kind of an interesting take on that. And it's brilliant. I loved it. The music is phenomenal. Kirk, you will will love every... I mean, both of you will love the music. Um, And it's just such a good kind of palate cleanser in between these massive RPGs that everybody is playing. Um, Baldur's Gate and Starfield. This is such a good, like, I'm going to chill and lie in bed and play this for an hour, and it's going to be awesome type of game. I cannot recommend it highly enough to everybody. It's called Chance of Sonar. Again, terrible name, but it's an incredible video <laughs> game. Really, just go check it out, because it's really, really cool, and I think it'll be the surprise kind of gem of this year in the same way that like games like Oberdin 
Ben and, and Outer Wilds and Bava is You have kind of come out of nowhere to really surprise people over the past few years. So, yeah, go check it out. I wish it had a better name so I could be really telling more people, like, hey, go mm-hmm. check out this catchy name. And they actually remember it instead of being like, what was it? Like, uh, like yeah. songs of It's tough that bizarre. it's a homonym, Chance. Yeah, like, it's, that it's, alone it's just makes, a bad, it it's just a bad name. And, and I think that might hurt it pretty badly. But still, go check it out. That game sounds cool. I want to play it. I'm also just Me pouring too. one out for all of the Tunic fans who are listening to you talk yeah, about that. Being like, and not this sounds like Tunic. Tunic. Why didn't these guys like Tunic? And, yeah, and yeah. Tunic. Remember the, okay. the combat? I really, yeah, it. we all kind of bounced off of that. I know. I know. We don't have to relitigate Tunic. Um, yeah. I, I, I it had some good you. ideas. And I mean, yes. you know. But I know that was another game that introduced an interesting language and a lot of cool these kinds if of things. If that game had no combat, I mean, this game has no combat. It has yeah. a couple of stealth sections that might annoy people, but I actually thought they were pretty fun because they're less like um, random stealth sections and more like, okay, I have to figure out exactly how to, how to do this. Yeah, mm-hmm. it sounds really good. Um, so my one more thing is a very cool archival project that I actually contributed to. I wouldn't say I worked on it, but I played a role in, in the creation of this. Promotional one more thing. So this is a bit of a promotional one more thing. You can you can just fast forward through this if you don't want to hear someone talk about something he was involved in. Well, we did just um, say we don't have ads, so Kirk, this is... That's a... true. This is I'm not being paid in any way, though I was, I was paid to create something for this. So anyways, that's the making of Karataka, which just came out and is extremely cool. Um, this is made by Digital Eclipse. Uh, one of the the editorial, I think like the editorial director, someone doing editorial on this is uh, Chris Kohler, mm-hmm. our former colleague from know. Kotaku, who got in touch with me to, to make something for this as well. But this is made by Digital Eclipse, who do these kinds of archival documentary video game uh, projects. Their last, the last, I think the last thing they did before this was Atari 50, which was very similar and was a whole bunch of classic Atari games where you load the game up in Steam or wherever. I, I played this on Steam and you get a menu that sort of has the game and then different versions of the game that you can play through along with video clips and design documents and just this sort of whole history of the creation of the game. In this case, it's uh, Jordan Mechner's 1984 game Karataka, which was his first game. This is a karate game where you're the karate master, the karataka, who has to go and save the girl from the bad guy. I mean, it is like... Video it's games. a video game from it's, the era. Exactly. <laughs> it really established a lot of the sort of um, the rules of what a video game could even be. It was super groundbreaking, a game that I didn't know that much about before I began working on this project and then learned a whole lot about in the process of making it. And one of the coolest things about it is that he worked very closely with his father, Francis Mechner, who is a fascinating dude, a really interesting guy, who, among other things, composed the music for this game. And that's where I come in. So I recorded a sort of 20-minute Strong Songs-like music explanation that's included in this game. So if you if you play this game, if you have it, there's all kinds of archival footage, famous video game people talking about this game and its influence, and then there's just 20 minutes of me talking to you about the music theory and the sounds and the different motifs and how they work <laughs> in so the game. Cool. It was cool. really fun. It was super fun to make and, um, and really educational for me. I just learned a lot and came to really appreciate this game for just what a big deal it was. Um, this isn't an era of games that I've traditionally paid that much attention to but it's made me really just want to learn more about this stuff because it's so interesting and so approachable i think anyone who checks this out will find 
you can really understand how they made this game because it's just not that complicated. It isn't like watching the Double Fine documentary like Psych Odyssey where, you know, you kind of get a sense of what they're doing when they're working in Maya or whatever and doing really complex 3D animations and level design. But it's like five different people talking and essentially code about this very complicated thing that's taking months to do. This was just one guy who had been kind of, there's a lot of his prototypes or includedness of earlier games that he was making where he was super young. I mean, he was like 16, 17 trying to make video games before anyone was even making video games and just trying to figure out how to make these very old, simple computers do stuff like render things on screen, like do rotoscoping animation so that the karate moves match up so you can play the game. And it's really, really cool the more you watch him do it. And then for me, at least, the story of him and his father and the way his dad is just really interested in trying to help out his kid, his like very precocious, brilliant son who's just trying to do this weird thing, uh, is also just a really, really neat story. And it's awesome that they have all this footage of his dad. And then especially for me, seeing his dad explain the music and even having the idea of having music in a game like this was kind of the first game to do that um, where he's like we should have a motif like you should write a motif for the hero and it can kind of play and (laughs) Jordan Megner is like okay well we have basically no way to do that (laughs) and he's like all right well because he's sitting there at the piano being like what about this and he plays the card he's like okay I can do like two notes (laughs) so like which two (laughs) notes do you want to do and like watching them figure that out is really cool so I wanted to recommend it mostly because it's well because it's really interesting because I learned a lot Um, I had a lot of fun working on it and also, I just, I hope more of people do this kind of thing. It was, it's so cool to see an interactive documentary like this where you have multiple versions of Karataka. There's even a remastered version that you can just play with like a modern controller. And it's just, it makes history, like video game history makes sense, I think, in a way that a movie about this wouldn't because you can play it. You can actually interact with it because that's so fundamental to video games. So I really think it's a special project. I'm super proud to have been a part of it. And uh, yeah, I hope people check it out. So that's the making of Karataka. It's on, um, you know, various platforms. It's definitely on Steam. That's where I played it. And uh, it's super cool. So yeah, awesome. give, it a, give it a look if you think that sounds interesting. Yeah, it does. Maddie, what's your one more thing? Mine is yet another book. Uh, so it's a New York Times bestseller. So maybe people have heard of it. I felt like I heard about it a lot before I finally got around to it. It's called Chain Gang All-Stars. And it's by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. And it is pretty different from the fiction books that I normally read. Not politically or thematically, but just because it kind of feels like a series of short stories. And I kind of wish I'd known that going in. So it's why I'm happy to explain that to the listeners now, because usually with a fiction book, I'm excited to meet a hero and follow them on their journey. And that's kind of what happens in this. But mostly it's like this Hunger Games-esque, super terrifying, near future dystopic world about a series of prisoners who get to fight for their freedom potentially, although I have a feeling, I haven't finished this book yet, I have a feeling that no matter how many other prisoners you mm. defeat in gladiatorial combat, you don't ever really get to be free, because that's that's usually how dystopic <laughs> sci-fi prison gladiator stories go. You usually don't ever get to be free, uh, but I don't. Yeah. I haven't completed As it yet. As they say, uh, one way out. <laughs> that's right. That's, that is true, one way out. It's very much in, in theme with the sort of uh, political sci-fi that I, that I like to read, and so that's why I was so excited about it. Uh, but it it does kind of have two main characters, two black women who are very famous fighters and very well known 
and and have a huge fandom. Uh, there's there's other fighters who have fandoms as well because this this show that all of these gladiators are competing on is is televised and it's controversial uh, societally, but it's also very lucrative, of course, for private prisons. Uh, and it's it's a it's, since it's sort of a near future dystopia, it sort of just mm-hmm. makes clear to you the extent to which, especially uh, just the brutalization of of black lives in media, is just normalized and profited upon. I mean, that's very much the message that the book is is making. But the weird part about it is just the fact that it feels like a series of snapshots. I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just, it's very jarring. And I think that goes with the way that the book wants to operate. It's Mm. mega violent, uh, like lots and lots of descriptions of just people getting killed within seconds because it's gladiator battles. So you'll get to know a character really well after a few paragraphs and know everything about their life and then they'll die. And that can be kind of hard to read. But it is fascinating, sure. and I get why people are super into the book, because it really just kind of smacks you in the face with how brutal it is and draws some pretty clear parallels between our prison system and just the idea of that being a televised event that people enjoy in that way. There's chapters about protesters who are against it and and their experiences, and then chapters about like people in the audience who are like super fans, and it, it just jumps around a lot. And it's it's kind of an unusually structured book for that reason. But yeah, I recommend it if you like science fiction in that type. I, I wish it was a little more Hunger Gamesy, just because I would love it if I could follow one character more. The book is kind of that. Like there, it, it's a little mm-hmm. bit of that. And maybe as I read more and more, it'll become more of that. But I think it's more about the world itself. So mm-hmm. if that sounds good to you, um, I do recommend it. It's very it's very well written. It's it's beautifully written and. Again, very violent. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's called Chain great. Gang All Stars. It it is what it sounds like. It is Chain Gang All Stars, and nice. uh, yeah, it's a book. That's so, yeah, that's my thing. That sounds that sounds good. I'll I'll check it out. Cool. Yeah, I recommend it. Awesome. That is it for this week's episode. Thanks sure again to is. everybody who wrote. We did it in. again. And uh, yeah, stay tuned for the Zelda episode, or maybe it's already out and you can listen to it. Right maybe now. you can just go listen. We don't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe you already listened. Who knows what the future will hold? Who can really, who can really say? The only person who can say is Bing Kirk. That's true. Bing Kirk knows. <laughs> Bing. Kirk here from the future, and I do know, in fact, I know that the Zelda Beanscast is out right now. So if you're a member, you can go listen to it in the bonus feed. And uh, it was a whole lot of fun, so we hope you enjoy it. All right. Bing! Hmm. Is the episode and you have to discover it through a series of puzzles? Right, that's true. This episode uh, (laughs) is secretly a... uh... (laughs) Yeah, it's a secret that was with us all along, flying around. Uh Uh-huh. Wild, wild stuff. <laughs> all right. Well, you should that's put spoiler episode. beeps on, on everything that Maddie and I just said. Okay. Um, okay, all right. Great. That is it for sure. this week's episode. See you guys next week. Yep. See you next week. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 
Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows. Supported directly by you.